Tonight our topic out of Jeremiah chapter 17. This is a very powerful chapter. There's a lot of verses in it that uh, are quoted quite a bit. Um, chapter 17 verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of the heart, and on the horns of the altar. So, pretty powerful statement here that uh, God writes the sins of his people as if with an iron pen, as if with a diamond point, and has engraved it into their hearts and on the horns of the altar. So sin, as we partake of it, as we continue in it, it's in our hearts. That's where the problem is. It's inside us, the problem of sin, that needs to be dealt with. And then it mentions, on the horns of the altar. No doubt an analogy to God's sanctuary. The altar had four horns on it, one in each corner, where we'd bring the offerings, where we'd bring the lambs, and we'd offer the sacrifices, confess our sins upon the lambs, Sacrifice the lambs, our sins would transfer, symbolically transfer from the person to the sin, to the lamb, and the lamb would then bear the punishment and be sacrificed, died, and burned on the altar, thus transferring the sin from the person to the sanctuary, to the altar, and thus engraving the sin upon the horns of the altar. Transferring it there, leaving it there. But if we don't confess the sins, if we don't repent of the sins, they remain engraved upon our hearts. And so God knows our sins. God sees it. It's like I said, engraved in the record books of heaven. It is there and needs to be dealt with. It's not just blows away. It's not just passed over. Sin is a serious business, and it is written. written God sees it. And it dwells within us. And this chapter deals with the sins of his people. I will cause you, verse 4, I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. For you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. So God's, the sins of God's people are serious. God takes them seriously. He sees them, they are engraved, and there is a punishment that will take place in response to the sins. Now we can have the lambs, prophetically, the lambs pointing to the Messiah, the Lamb of God, slain for us, for him to bear our punishment for us. But if not, then we will bear the punishments ourselves. And God says he's going to banish us into the land because of the sins of the people. Babylon was going to come, and Babylon did come, and we went into the land of our enemies, and a fire was kindled, caused God's anger, which says it shall burn forever. Now he's patient, long-suffering, forgiving. But if we don't confess the sins, they remain on the record books forever. Forever. Now, this word forever, we need to understand the word forever, how it's used biblically. It refers to the life of the issue of what it's talking about. So it's talking about God who is eternal, who lives forever, who has an eternal existence from the beginning to the end. There is no end with him and there is no beginning with him. So eternity with God forever is forever, as we generally understand the term. 
But when it's talking about something that has a beginning and has an end, it's for at the life of that entity that it's talking about. And so the anger will last, God's anger will last, his hatred for sin will continue until sin is completely destroyed. And those sinners that hold on to that sin, destroyed with it, then it's over and God passes on and moves on. Until so God will destroy the wicked, there is a punishment for sin. God will not allow sin to continue on for eternity. He won't give sinners and sin eternal life to destroy his and mar his kingdom. It will be destroyed once and for all. There's a punishment here. Punishments that take place, for example, with Israel, or Judah in this case, their sins led to Babylonian captivity, but also eternally to the final destruction of those who resist God and hate God. It'd only be a lunatic of a type of a God who would allow rebellion against him and against his people to continue for eternity. It wouldn't be fair to those who love God. It wouldn't be fair to God. Nor would it be fair to those who hate God any more than any intelligent human being would allow someone to live in their house that constantly curses them, constantly disrespects everything that they stand for, constantly goes against anything they ask. If you ask them to lock the door when they leave, if they refuse to lock the door when they leave, you ask them to just respect my items and they're constantly taking a hammer and smashing all your items, your, your blender and your microwave and your refrigerator and your television, and they're constantly destroying everything, even though you've asked them not to. And then hurting your children and poisoning your pets, only a lunatic would allow that person to continue to live in their house. And so there is a judgment day. And God states that his anger will remain forever. It will burn forever. Again, when wickedness and sin is finally destroyed, which God will put an end to it, it will end. Verse 5, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert. He shall not, he shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parts, places of the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Again, there is a final judgment and an eternal punishment to those who resist God, and they will be cursed. The curse will remain upon them. There is a good, there is an evil, and God will separate the two. And we are cursed if we trust in ourselves, if we trust in human beings, into parting from trusting in the Lord. And we see this over and over again. This is a theme throughout the Bible from the very beginning of sin in this earth. Adam and Eve trusting in their own reasoning. Satan tempting them. You won't surely die. Look, I'm eating and I'm okay. And you'll be smarter. And they decided to trust a serpent. They tried to trust, decided to trust themselves. Well, this probably won't hurt and it won't hurt that bad. And we'll try it. And Eve ate and it, she didn't die immediately, so she took it to Adam. 
trusting in their own reasoning. Oh, God can't be that bad that he would punish us. God is so loving and so good, certainly he'll allow us to continue to live here in this Garden of Eden forever and ever, even if we just disobey in this one point. From the very beginning, they used human logic, human reasoning, that was opposite of God's word. They trusted in themselves, and they became cursed. Judgment did come. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They did eventually die. Luther also justified his actions in heaven. Trusted in his own beauty, trusted in his own abilities, trusted that he knew better than God. And that is the same today. Every time we disobey in any area of our life, we are basically saying, I know better than God. I'm able to come up with the morals better than God. I am more loving than God is. I am more just, I am more wise than God is. God might say this, might be, this is good for me and this is what he commands, but I don't think I need to do that. And I'll still be okay. That's trusting in man. That's trusting in our own human reasoning. That's trusting in ourselves. That's trusting in our own abilities. And we make ourselves God by doing that. It's like the atheist reasoning that they can come up with a moral code. How can an atheist come up with a moral code? Only by making themselves God. By saying, this is what is moral, this is what is not moral. This is what is right, and this is what is not right. What do they base it on? Their own opinion. That's the only thing they have to base it upon. Even something as nice and simple as do unto others as you want others to do unto yourself. Well, that seems reasonable enough. That seems fair enough. That seems to be universal enough. But what if someone disagrees with that? And there are plenty of cultures in this world today that don't agree with that. They think it's first, certainly fine and justifiable to do unto others whatever it takes to get rid of them, to annihilate the infidel, to get rid of old cultures. And so they might not agree with your moral code, which of course comes from a Judeo-Christian fabric and foundation. So without the word of God being an authority, trusting in our own human reasoning, trusting in mankind to come up with a moral code is faulty and lacking. Or we can trust in ourselves in many forms, still making ourselves a God in a sense. Instead of coming to God in prayer, when we come across a problem, a situation in our life, we'll trust in doctors, we'll trust in lawyers, we'll trust in our degrees, we'll trust in our education, we'll trust in our past work history, we'll trust in the money that we have in the bank, we'll trust in the government to provide for us, we'll trust that Social Security is going to be there and our retirement will be there, we trust in our 401ks and mutual funds, some kind of payment that's coming in. 
And it's good to have those things. And it's good to have doctors. It's good to have lawyers. It's good to have mechanics. But our trust needs to be in God. We come to God first in prayer and then see what God is going to use to bring about the solution to the problem. If we trust in humans, we will be disappointed. Because humans will make mistakes and will disappoint us. And even if they're doing what is right, it might not be right according to what we want. We can't trust humans. We can't even trust God to do what we want him to do. He doesn't always do whatever we want him to do. Right? Prayer is not a magic box that we just twist God's arm and make him do what, whatever we want him to do. That's still trusting in flesh. That's still trusting in ourselves that I say this prayer, I say this, these words, and then God has to do what I told him I want done. That's not how prayer works. That's trusting in self. That's trusting in the arm of flesh. That's not trusting in God. Trusting in God is praying and saying, Lord, if it's your will, do this, this, and this. If this would bring you honor and glory, if this is what your plan is. But a prayer that is disappointed when it doesn't get answered as we want it to get answered is not a prayer that trusts in God. It's a prayer that trusts on self. This is a theme throughout the scriptures. There's many verses in the Bible that are similar to this. And then the contrast to it in verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. I've lived in some places where it's pretty dry. Worked in some places where it's pretty dry, but along the riverbeds, the trees are green and grow well. Their roots are connected to the source of water. And those that trust in the Lord through dry times, through difficult times, will have a source of strength in the word of God, in the power of God, knowing that God loves them and that God will work all things out together for good to those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. Whether it's what we expected or not what we expected, if we trust the Lord, it will be good according to what he determines is good in the long run, in the big picture. In the eternity scheme of things. And so we are blessed if we trust the Lord. And if we're trusting in the Lord, we are always then blessed. If our hope is in him, if our expectation is on him, if we're waiting upon him, if we're looking for him to bring about the desired results, then we'll always be happy. Then we'll be at peace. Then we'll be blessed. He is trustworthy. He has been consistent. He is faithful. And we can trust him.
based on what he has done in the past, from eternity on, and what he's done in our own lives. Wonderful promise <coughs> to lay hold on. For God to give us faith. For God to give us trust. For God to, for, to be dependent upon God is the safest place to be in the universe. And that's where we see sometimes people who have no resources at all. Nothing that they can depend on. No abilities left. No help, no friends. And yet sometimes can be the happiest people in the world if their trust is in God. Because God is able to sustain us. And this world is just a place we're passing through. Not a place we're gathering stuff. Or to hope for a long life in. Or prosperity in. It's just a place to pass through. It's just a time to get to know God. That's what this earth is about. So that we can be with him for eternity. And know him for eternity. And there is an eternity. But even if there wasn't. Blessed is the person who trusts in the Lord. Happy is the person who trusts in the Lord. And better to be happy, even if there's not an eternity, even to be better to be happy here, trusting in God, than to be cursed and worryful and sad and discouraged and impatient in this world and not have anything for eternity either. Continuing with this, the heart is deceitful above all things, verse 9, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits, fruit of his doings. We can't trust in our own heart. This verse explains so much. It explains why we do what we do. It explains human nature. Psychologists, psychiatrists, anthropologists, whatever, they cannot understand why humans do what they do. This verse explains it. Without the Bible, there's no reason, there's no explanation for sin. There's some horrible event that takes place, some mass shooting or some horrible thing. And they go, we don't know the motives yet. Or then they get the motive, and this is the motive. This is the motive. The kids ask us, you know, why would someone do that? We say, what do you think? And, they, and the answer that we always come back to is, because they have an unclean heart. That's the bottom line. That's the only reason. We can give a reason why someone did that then it's almost an excuse for it. And there is no excuse for sin. The only reason is an unclean heart. A carnal heart. That explains why we do what we do. You know, we evolved from the other animals. Well, you look at the 
animals. I don't know of any other animal that on a mass scale tries to wipe out its own kind. No other species has weapons of mass destruction and tries on a consistent basis to wipe out its own kind. There might be some territorial feuds at times, but even then when we see, you know, like, like two rams, you know, battling it out, who's going to be the, the leader of the pack? They balk each other's heads for a while, and then they give up. They don't kill each other. They fight until one is stronger, shows he's stronger than the other, and the other one backs away and tries to find his own curd or start over or do whatever. But they don't kill each other most often. And it's certainly not on mass scales of killing their own kind. But humans, we do it all the time. We've been doing it almost since the beginning of time. Adam, uh, uh, Cain killing Abel. Humans killing humans. Sometimes for no reason, I mean, again, there's no reason, but no explanation other than jealousy or greed or selfish wanting what the other person has because of a carnal heart. And so without the Bible, there's no explanation of why we do what we do. Why it's easier to do wrong than it is to do right. Even if we had a moral code of do unto others as we would want others to do unto us, without God, we don't even do that. Even then, we still put us first. And we do unto others what's best for me, is what we do, in reality. But it's because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And we can't even know it. This is a major problem with psychology, psychiatry. Because what are those? What are they the study of? The study of the human mind. So they are studying something that is enmity against God. They are studying something that's desperately wicked. They are studying something that's deceitful. And by beholding, you become changed. That's why it's so depressing <laughs> in those careers. But you can't come to a solution. If all you've ever been shown as a mechanic is broken parts and broken cars, you don't, and never see one that works, you don't know how to change it to make it work if you've never seen how it's supposed to work. So it's only studying the divine mind. It's only by studying Yeshua the Messiah. It's only by studying God and his word, how he describes how he is, who he is, his character, and studying how it was lived out in Yeshua. It's by studying that, the divine example, by studying the sinless example, that we can then look at the defective ones, the rest of us, and see how we should be. And then it's only coming to him and confessing our carnal heart, confessing our deceitful heart, confessing that we are desperately wicked, and allowing God to do a heart transplant. It's a miracle of God. 
And he does this heart transplant while we're still alive, while we're still awake. We confess our carnal heart as we confess our sinfulness. He takes out that heart and he puts in his heart. It's a miracle transfusion that he does. It's heart transplant that he does. And it can't be explained, but it can be experienced. And people have been experiencing it thousands of years. And it's real. And can't be denied by those who've experienced it. It's an ongoing process because the natural heart continually attempts to gain ascendancy again. And it continually needs to be suppressed and confessed and surrendered over to God. Trusting in the Lord, not trusting in self. So the heart's desperately wicked. We can't even know it. So we try and search out our own heart and we try and figure ourselves out. We can't. We can't figure ourselves out. Humans can't figure humans out. Individually, we can't look in a mirror and figure out what our own problem is. It's only by looking into the eyes of Yeshua. It's only as we behold him. It's only as we look at him that we can see ourselves in right relation to him. If we look at ourselves, what we'll end up doing is we'll compare ourselves with other people. And we'll either say, oh, I am better than these people, and come with a wrong conclusion and be puffed up and proud. Or we'll look at maybe other people and we'll say, well, I'm not as good as those people. And we'll have the other side of pride, still self. And we will think we are unworthy or anything and, and have a negative aspect. Or we will look at ourselves and compare ourselves with ourselves. Oh, I am better today than I was yesterday. I'm better at this than now than I was in the past. Or I'm not as good as I used to be. And so again, it's either a puffing up or a descending down attitude. Neither which is healthy, neither which is good, neither which is accurate. And that's why we can't know it. We cannot understand the heart only as we look at the divine heart, only as we look at God's word. Only then can we know what is right. Only then can we have a right depiction of what is moral, what is not moral, what is good, what is not good, what is right, what is wrong. And then in that contrast, comparing ourselves with him, then we see what we really are. And what are we? Greatly loved by a God who cares about those who are desperately wicked. <laughs> and loves us in spite of the fact that we are desperately wicked, which then exalts our understanding and love for God back. If we think, well, he loves me because I'm better than these other people. He loves me because I'm pretty good at this. He loves me because I did this. He loves me because I gave here. He loves me because I spent time here. 
then we're earning his love. But when we realize we are deceitful and desperately wicked, and yet he loves us anyway, and loves us enough to change us, and has provided the way for us to be changed, provided the way for us to be able to partake of the divine nature by having self-surrendered in Messiah and transformed by his grace. And it gives us a greater appreciation for him and it helps us to see ourselves in right relation to everybody else. Because not only are we desperately wicked, they're desperately wicked too. And when we realize we're just as desperately wicked as they are, and they're just as desperately wicked as we are, we can have compassion on them in their wickedness as well. And we can have mercy and patience with them as well. And we will then want to lead them to the one who loves them even in their desperate, wicked state and can change them. The heart is deceitful, so we lie to ourselves. We're self-deceived. And that's the greatest deception of them all. When we think we're okay, but we're deceiving ourselves because we're really not okay. This is the epitome of deception, of deceiving ourselves that we're not lying. Well, how can one be convinced that they're not lying when they believe they're not lying? When they're lying to themselves that they're not lying. So that's the worst part of the, decept the desperately wicked heart, is that it deceives itself that it's not desperately wicked. My heart is good. I'm okay. I'm okay. You're okay. We'll tolerate each other. You're good. I'm good. Many paths to heaven. We're doing better, striving, we're evolving. Eventually we'll figure out a solution to all this. And if I need some help, I'll go see a psychiatrist. And he'll fix me. Because he'll blame my parents or grandparents or someone else. <laughs> and it's not my fault. <laughs> yeah, the dog did it. Not that there's not a place for counseling, especially biblical ones that let us look at the picture of Messiah. Let us view God so that we can see where we are in relation to him. But it starts with being real with ourselves and that's interesting, the verses that come after that well-quoted text, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? That I, the Lord, search the heart. So while we can't search the heart ourselves, God can search our heart. And the reason we can't search it, again, because we're decept deceive ourselves. If we try and search our own heart, we'll come out with a good answer all the time. Or the wrong answer all the time. But God will search the heart. And so if we can ask him for the test results, then he'll tell us the truth. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. God will do the testing for us. And that's where David says, search me, O God, and try my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me. That's the type of prayer that gets us to where we want to be. That's the heart that doesn't trust in itself, that's the heart that trusts in God to search the heart. 
Allow God to search us and then to show us the wicked ways in us. Not mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Must be me. It's God search my heart and show me the wickedness in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. So God shows us where we're wrong, not for the point, purpose of putting us down, but for the purpose of correcting us, for taking that, removing it, and then changing us and leading us in the right way. So God tests the mind. God will search the heart. And if we pray and allow him to, he will show us the results of that test. To every man, God will give according to his ways, according to the fruits of our doings. So there will be a judgment day. So we can self-deceive ourselves. There is no God. I'm okay. Everyone's okay. Everything's going to go on for eternity. We're all all right. For God's so loving, he forgives us all, and he'll take us all to heaven anyway. No, he will give us according to our ways, according to the fruits of our actions. As we live, so we will reap. Which only makes sense, the only way it should be. Verse 11, as the partridge that broods but does not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by right. It will leave him in the midst of his days, and at the end he will be a fool. Like sitting on an egg that's never going to hatch. Those who get riches, wealth, prosperity in this world, storing up for ourselves, thinking the one who ends and dies with the most uh, toys wins, is not what it's about. That is a fool. Storing up for ourselves will not get us the happiness that we desire here and will certainly not get us the eternity that God wants for us. It will end in unhappiness then and it will be unhappy even now. Guilty conscience, negative circumstances that happen just as a result of us being selfish and storing up for ourselves because we still have to deal with other human beings who will constantly want and steal and take and not be happy that we took and stole and manipulated and was greedy. So it's unhappy here, striving to have the most. That's the problem with the game Monopoly. There's only one winner. And one is a lonely place. And so even if you gain the whole Monopoly board in life, and you live by yourself in a hotel on, at Boardwalk, it's pretty lonely there. But the riches that God gives are for eternity. The peace the joy, contentment, happiness, generosity, faith, love, compassion, mercy, helpfulness, cheerfulness. You can't put a price on those things. 
Those are the riches that God gives to us. And he gives it to us here and now. And again, if that's all there was, it'd be well worth it. But then he gives us eternity on top of that as well. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Why does God throw that in here where he's talking about sin and sin being recorded with a pen, an iron pen, and a diamond and point and a deceitful heart and the wicked being judged and God searching the heart and giving everyone according to his works. What does that have to do with God's sanctuary? A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. The, obviously the sanctuary of God, the heavenly sanctuary is what he's referring to here. Why is that thrown in here at this point? Because that's where the judgment takes place. David wrote, that as he saw the prosperity of the wicked, he got discouraged. Why are they prospering in their lives when they're doing such wicked things? He said he was troubled by these things until he went into the sanctuary of God. And so the wicked may prosper for a time here. They may have some stuff here, but in the sanctuary of God, we see the eternal judgment. We see what is really right and what is really wrong. That God is enthroned on high, sitting on his glorious throne, that he sees it all, that nothing goes unnoticed, that the wicked who mistreat us and, and, and cause problems to us will have their day of judgment. They will not go unpunished. They will not get away with it forever. Oh, they may fool the courts here, they may fool the police here, they may fool the government now, but they will not fool God. God will have his day of judgment. And in the end, God will mete out, and God will give to those who surrendered to him and have been filled with his righteousness and justice. He will give us the gifts, his spirit, and of eternal life forever and ever and ever. And the wicked will have their punishment. It's in the sanctuary of God, the throne room of God, where he's got the best vantage point to see it all. Nothing goes unnoticed by him. And this is the point where Jeremiah was getting at. This is what he needed. In verse 13, he cries out, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. He learned that in the sanctuary of God. In the temple services, in the judgment, in the Yom Kippur. Those who depart from me, God now responds, those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. If we forsake the strength, if we forsake the source of life, there is no life. If we forsake God, there is nothing else. If we depart from him, we shrivel up and die. And there is nothing left. And thus they will be ashamed. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved, for you are my prey. Now, this is not saying that Jeremiah had a cold or something like that or cancer or that he's praying for healing. We're going to see what he's praying about. 
but it is a good prayer if we're physically sick as well. But this comes in the midst of the same theme here, where Jeremiah is observing the wickedness that's taking place all around him. He realizes that he needs to be healed as well, that his heart is desperately wicked as well, that he is self-deceiving as well. Heal me, Lord, and I shall be healed. Heal me of my self-deception. Heal me of my wickedness. Heal me of my sinfulness. Heal me of my carnal heart. Give me a new heart and I will be saved. I will be delivered from wanting to do evil. I will be delivered from the continuation of doing evil. I'll be delivered from the wrong habits. I'll be delivered from the wrong thoughts and inclinations and leanings and desires. I will be saved. I will be delivered. I'll be set free from the bondage of sin that has continued to do what it know is wrong. That has kept me back from doing what is right. I'll be healed. I'll be saved. And you'll be my praise. I will testify to others. I will tell others. I will witness for, to you of you for to others. You will be my praise. And that is what happens when we are saved. When we experience the transformation of heart that God puts into us, when he takes out that deceptive carnal heart and puts it in his heart, our natural result is to want to tell others to give God praise, to lead other people to him, to witness for him, to let other people know about him. Because then we have God's heart, and God's heart loves others. And it will cause us to love others and want others to experience the joy and the peace and the love and the happiness that we're experiencing. So for them to know God. That is the true test of faith. That is the true test of the heart. Because we could do all kinds of good things and righteous things and even biblical things for wrong motives and out of self, and out of our own strength. But a love and a burden for others only comes from God. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. This is what Jeremiah was dealing with continually, speaking for God and being doubted, his words being negated, refuted. You know, he posts something on Facebook and then someone says, oh, that's wrong, you know, yeah. <laughs> and try and tear down what Jeremiah would post there. <laughs> he was continually experiencing that. Everything he said, they said, well, come on, where's the word of the Lord? You said we're going to go to Babylon. Well, where's Babylon? They haven't come yet. It's went on for years and years and years. Destruction's going to come. You're going to be cursed. Oh, we seem to be okay now. We're in better shape than you are, Jeremiah. You're the one in the pit. You're the one that's beaten. You're the one that's the minority. We're in the majority and we're doing okay. 
We're ruling the country. We've got the food. Where is it, Jeremiah? Where's the word of the Lord? Show it to us now. Where's the miracles of God? Where's your blessings, Jeremiah? God doesn't always bless in the here and now. God doesn't always bring his judgment in the here and now. God doesn't always zap with lightning those that curse us and abuse us. It's in the sanctuary of God that we see the end judgment. And that's what it means to trust in the Lord. Not in the circumstances, not in the situation, not what we see with our own eyes. Not what we have in the here and now. What we have in our hearts, what we have in our life, what we have in our soul. The peace that passes understanding. That's what Jeremiah had. The happiness and the praise and the salvation and the deliverance in the here and now. I've not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. Do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. Jeremiah is trusting in the Lord, crying out to him to be his deliverance, crying out to him to help him, not relying on himself, not relying on others. He's trusting in the Lord. Let them not be ashamed to persecute me, but do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but do not let me dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. Sounds pretty harsh. But just Jeremiah just knows that's the end result. That's what's going to happen. But yet at the same time, if that's what Jeremiah was just doing, if Jeremiah went and hid himself away somewhere, in some cave somewhere, and just prayed for the destruction of the wicked, we'd say, oh, well, he was selfish and unkind and unloving. But Jeremiah remained in Jerusalem, and at the same time, he knows this is going to be the end result of the wicked. He is working and telling them and warning them and working for their salvation and trying to pull out of the fire every single one who can be delivered. So while this is what he's thinking and he knows this is what's going to happen as he's looked into the sanctuary of God, as he's looked into the plan of God, as he's looked into the judgment of God, and he knows this is what's going to happen. At the same time, he's working with all his might, with all his strength, with all his soul, to save and deliver out of this everyone that he can. And he prophesies and prophesies and he prophesies and he takes the beatings and he takes the rejection and he takes the abuse, humiliation, because he loves the people, because he loves God. And he doesn't want them to see them 
have double destruction. He doesn't want them to experience doom. He just knows that's going to be the end. And that is what happened. Eventually, Babylon does come through. Babylon does take the king captive. Babylon does take all the people captive. And Jeremiah is spared through it. Jeremiah's prophecies did come to pass. And that's one of the reasons we know we can trust God now, because he was trustworthy then. It took many years, but it came to pass, just as Jeremiah said it would. And we know that God's word will come to pass just as it does now. Just as, just as it did then, it will come to pass in our lives as well. And in the meantime, we need to be doing all that we can because double destruction is coming upon this world. Doom is coming upon this world. And we need to do what we can by God's strength and by God's power to reach every single person and to warn them, and to witness to them, and to demonstrate to them the love of God. And that's what Jeremiah did in his life, in his actions, even while he went through a very difficult time. And so as we think on these things and think about our lives, And the words that are recorded with the iron pen and a point of a diamond on our record books and on our hearts and on the altar. The sins in our records, we want to surrender them to God in a moment when we pray. Any ones that you know that are there, God's already convicting you of. Confess them and receive his deliverance and receive his help. For those that are willing to pray, Lord, search me. Bring me into the sanctuary. You know my heart. Search my heart. Show me what's there. Show me what areas I've been deceiving myself. Show me what areas you want to correct. Show me what areas you want to change. The moment we pray, that's a great prayer to pray. And those that are realizing how desperately wicked our hearts are and want deliverance from it, we can pray, as Jeremiah did, help, O Lord. Heal me. Heal the sin-sick soul. Heal me of my wickedness. Heal me of my carnal nature. Heal me of my deceptive heart. And let God do his work in us. If you're needing God's salvation, needing God's deliverance, for God to give you joy and peace and happiness and love, contentment, if you've been trusting in yourself, trusting in your own abilities, trusting in others, maybe just in one area. Maybe you trust in the Lord in lots of areas, but maybe one area. Maybe regarding your mortgage or your rent or your car or 
you trust in someone or yourself. Decisions. You want to trust in the Lord in every aspect. You want to surrender that and confess, Lord, I've been trusting in myself or I've been trusting in these others in this area. And I want to surrender that to you and I want to trust you wholly and completely. In a moment when we pray, surrender that area to the Lord. And let him heal us. Let him save us. Let him give us his heart, his love, his compassion, his burden for the lost. And if we haven't been laboring for others and we really don't care about others and we really don't, aren't concerned with what happens to them, we're not actively engaged in trying to reach the lost. Let's pray and ask God to take out that selfish heart and for him to give us his heart and his labor for others. So if any of those areas apply to you or something else God's been speaking to you regarding this week, let's enter into prayer with him. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we thank you that you see all things, that you are enthroned on high, you are sitting on the sanctuary, in the sanctuary on your high and glorious throne, and you see us now, and you've seen us since the beginning of time, and you know our very hearts, you know our very motives, you know our very lives, and you know us and love us. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for not leaving us the way we are. Thank you for coming here to save us. Thank you for coming to us to lead us to a higher plane, to lead us in the way everlasting. And so we want to surrender self and our self-trust and our deceptive heart and our wicked heart. We want to surrender it all to you. And we want to be filled with you, with your light, with your glory, with your joy, with your peace, with your happiness, with your eternity. Heal us, Lord spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically. Work your healing upon us, Lord God. Heal our wounds. And turn us into your image. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.